Welcome to Your Best Riding Life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Riders Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week, I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the writing and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. I am so very glad that you're listening in today. Today, we're going to be sharing on creating online courses. And my industry expert is Thomas Umstead, Jr., Thomas is the founder of Author Media and the host of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thomas travels the world speaking at events to help authors build their platforms, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. He has also been creating online courses for 10 years, making him the perfect fit for today's topic. Welcome back, Thomas. So good to have you here. Thanks, Linda. I'm excited to be here. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into our content for today, creating online courses. And, you know, online courses have recently taken off in popularity, Thomas. Why is that? Yeah, so learning online has been a part of the Internet from the very beginning. In fact, it was very educational in the very early days. But, uh, you know, online courses grew. They started growing as people got faster Internet connections and could listen to audio and watch video. But the real explosion came uh, during the pandemic, the first year, 2020. People were locked down. The conferences were all canceled. And a lot of people tried online courses for the first time. They took their very first online course in 2020. And so the market just took a, a massive step forward in terms of people's acceptance of online courses. Their children were going to elementary school and high school online. So online learning is here uh, in a big way, and it's here to stay. I agree with you. It is here to stay. It has become a normal. It's one of those new normals that have just absolutely infiltrated the families, the homes. Everyone has some type of device that they can listen to, learn from online courses, and even just the, you know, the Zoomers that we have, the new Zoomers that are out there absolutely makes this a very popular new process in the life of, uh, Everyone. I mean, families and like you said, even with young people. So why would an author want to create a course? Well, in short, the money is a lot better. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And the transformation is better. So somebody takes a course on, uh, let's say, dieting. or So let's say they read a book on dieting. They may or may not implement it. But if they take a course on it, especially a course that's got a social element, a coaching element, an interactive element, they're much more likely to put what they're learning into practice. They're more likely to finish it, right? People buy books on topics all the time and never finish them, never read them. Or if they do read them, they don't put them into practice. And for me, this was my big reason for getting into courses was that I just wasn't seeing a lot of transformation in book reading. And partly because people just aren't very invested, right? The book's 20 bucks. It's not a lot of money to buy a book and you don't feel compelled to finish the book or read it. Just buying it for a lot of people is enough value. We all have bookshelves full of books that we haven't read. Sometimes we haven't even started, right? We bought them. It made us feel good to buy them, uh, but then we didn't do anything with them. Uh, Whereas a course, especially the more expensive ones, because they're more expensive, you're more bought in. You're you're more committed to finishing the course. And because they're more interactive and more robust, there's more to it than just words. You're more likely uh, to put what you're learning into practice, which then gives you that transformation, that results that you're looking for. And when we talk about the financial investment 
of a learner wanting to expand their knowledge in a course. When we are looking at authors that are creating courses themselves, we're going to get to that in in just a moment, how they can how they can start that. But there's a lot of authors that are jumping on courses because they're wanting to learn more about their own craft. They're wanting to perfect their craft. How do we know, or is there a way to track the return on investment? Because when you said, yeah, someone can buy a nonfiction book and they may read just one chapter of the nonfiction book. That's all they wanted to know about. They're not going to read the rest. We don't know what's going to happen with their life. But how do we, or can we track a return on investment when someone sinks their dollars into a course. What are your thoughts? Tracking return on investment, it's a pretty straightforward financial calculation. You just track how much money you spent on something, and then you track how much that activity brought back financially. Now, education is a little tricky because right now, what's the value of a high school diploma? Right? What's the value of a college degree. I took some classes in business school that were invaluable. They saved me from multi-million dollar mistakes. And I took some classes in college that were useless. And those classes right. caught me, cost me the same amount of money, right? The, the good professors and the bad professors were all the same overpriced amount of money. Like college is just insanely expensive. My textbooks were $300. And I went to college a long time ago. And college right. has only gotten more expensive today. And, and some college degrees aren't worth the money anymore. In fact, most of the liberal arts degrees don't pay for themselves. If you look at the numbers, an engineering degree, a nursing degree, those are still good investments. But an art history degree, uh, a lot of art history majors never escape the debt. They don't get enough earning power to pay off the debt that they went into to get that degree. So it, it is a challenge. If you're studying for a career, you can compare the new career uh, to the old career. I remember when um, I was looking into getting an MBA, they had the ROI. Here's the ROI of taking, getting an MBA with our university. And what was fascinating was that the ROI of the uh, executive MBA program was much higher than the regular MBA program because the executive MBA program, you still worked your day job, right? Giving up your day job for two or three years to go to school adds to the cost of the school because you're not only paying mm -hmm. for the school, you're foregoing the income that you would have made during those years. So there's a lot of pressure. And so you get the same thing, right? Let's say a simple course, let's say on how to build a website. You take the course, it's $100, and you spend $300 building the website. So you're $400 invested in the website. And hiring somebody to build you the website would have cost you $2,400. So that course had an ROI of $2,000 of saved money. But really, it's more than that, because since you've built your website, you now know how to make changes to your website. You have more power over your website. You don't have to call someone. On the other hand, that professional probably still did a better job, right? They have a <laughs> lot more experience that they're bringing to the table. Um, they've This isn't the first website they've built. It's the you know hundredth website they built. So they know to avoid things that you perhaps didn't learn in that course. So it makes it hard to judge, right? What, what's better, spending the less money, but getting the better experience and having more control or hiring the professional. You know, these are, these are why business is a, why it's a skill that we learn and we study because there's often no simple answers. And, but you answered well, the, the answer with no simple answer. You really did. And, and the reason that I asked it is because 
there are a lot of people that will hold back and they'll stand back and wait for that perfect opportunity. And a lot of times there's not a perfect situation, but if we don't do anything, if we don't take a course and we're wanting our life to improve or we're wanting to build that website, if we're not stepping forward into something, then we're still going to be where we are. And who's got time for that? I, I love online courses. I just need to be not addicted to them where I'm like, oh, I want, I want to do that one. I want to do that one. So for me, my return on investment is which course can I take that's applicable right now for my next best step? And then it kind of narrows my field a little bit because I used to want to sign up for everything, Thomas, especially if it had a good price on it. And then I found I'm not using that right now. What I do like is the ones that, no, if you've got this, you've got it for a lifetime. So you can come back and use this anytime. I really do like those. So you gave me a great answer. I appreciate that. For someone who's wanting to create a course, so we've got our writers out here. They're wanting to create a course. What are the first steps that they should take? The first step is you need to really master your content and you need to practice presenting what you're teaching in public. So having a podcast, I think, is the most natural first step for creating a course because it allows you to get used to creating content, multimedia content. Uh, you know, a YouTube channel also is helpful because it also has video. Uh, but having some way where you can start building an audience and start building credibility, talking to that audience. It's easy to start too soon creating a course uh, when no one knows who you are or, or believes that you are competent to talk on your topic, right? You can make the best course in the world, but if no one knows who you are and you have no ability to get the word out, then no one will take your course, no lives will be changed, and you won't make any money. <laughs> so it, it, the quality of a course isn't what sells the course. You sell the course based off the quality of your other content. And so first step is you know, get into blogging or podcasting or YouTubing. Find something that is valuable where you can start teaching people on your topics. Let's say you've got a course on parenting. You're going to talk about how to have a better relationship with your children. You've got this five-step system well, start podcasting about parenting start interviewing podcast like parenting experts, start talking about your five steps. It's not about keeping your knowledge secret because what people pay for in a course isn't the knowledge. There are people who have a course on a topic for $500 and they have a book on the same topic for 20 bucks. <laughs> it's the same information, but information alone is not transformation. And so don't feel like you have to keep your information secret because uh, somebody will always be willing to give it away cheaper. You can't uh, patent an idea. You can't copyright an idea. Ideas spread from person to person. And mm. as you get practice, you'll get better. And another really good form of practice is teaching in real life, right? So go to meetup groups and present on your topic. Speak at conferences. For most of my courses, the material of the courses came out of presentations that I did at writers conferences. And, you know, I did a week long writers conference in Hawaii where I presented for a week and a, a week long conference in Switzerland where I presented for a week. And, you know, that was a lot of work for basically a whole like 
career's worth of training. And so many of those presentations that I did before those live audiences, I later adapted into courses. And it's different, right? A one-hour talk, you can't just record it and post it as a course. But a lot of it is similar. And that live student interaction, especially the live Q&A at the end, you get to understand what makes sense and what doesn't make sense and, and what resonates. And also speaking in Switzerland, I got to learn some of my cultural references were offensive to the Europeans. <laughs> so I got to <laughs> polish off uh, some of those rough edges. You know, being a Texan, I don't know what offends Europeans. And now I do. So <laughs> at least I know some of the things that offend Europeans. Oh, this is good. I You brought up a parenting course. If you're going to, if you, if that's your area of expertise, you have the five steps or five tips to better parent your child that it does bring to my my mind right here that you are a dad again and i'm excited about that for you congratulations we have who is our newest addition his name is jack so i now have mercy age three tommy age two and jack who is freshly hatched so um not a lot of a lot of energy in the house. A lot of the, the children take turns. Uh, somebody's always awake. I feel like in the house, uh, depending on which child you're talking about. And how how does that? I'm just going to take a little aside here because I know that you have a full life and you are very effective in the arena that God has you as far as teaching. You have a podcast, as a couple podcasts as well, and you are out there training and teaching and you have that home life. Do you ever find it a challenge to balance that area? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I was so spread thin in 2019 that I had a mental breakdown and I couldn't get out of bed for a whole day. I had so much to do. And, um, that actually led to a season of pruning where I had to give up a lot of things. That's when I stepped down as a literary agent. I got rid of some of my podcasts. You know, I have two podcasts now, but I used to have five <laughs> spread uh, way too thin. And what I was forced to do was make this my day job, make helping authors my full-time job. So most of the people in this industry, the writing is their side hustle. They have some other primary source of income. Uh, for me, this is it, right? I, I make, if I'm going to make money, if I'm going to feed for my family, I'm the sole breadwinner, and it's got to come from the authors I help, either the people who listen to the podcast and they support on Patreon or the people who go through courses. So when I talk about courses and making money, I'm not doing that in a, like a mercenary sense. I'm doing that in a like, I got to pay the bills. <laughs> diapers aren't cheap. And I have three kids in diapers right now. Right. No, I think this is important also for our writers to hear because they may think creating an online course or doing courses, oh, well, that'll be fun. That'll be just a, one more thing to add on to what I'm doing. But it does take an investment and it takes an investment of time and it takes an investment of training. You know, when you mentioned a moment ago, well, go out and make sure that you have a YouTube page that you can be out there and have your video showing well, then you also need to start networking with people. You also need to know how much time are you going to put towards this? So it's not just a tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to start an online course. It's kind of stepping back, looking at, you know, we're we're at, at the beginning of a year. So we still have the remainder of a year 
to get this started and have it done well. I believe that's one of the comments that you made is if you're going to do this, do it well. So be prepared and to keep that balance in our home, because I will say for Christian writers, for Christians who want to impact the world with knowledge they have in their writing, in their podcasting, in whatever area that we are finding ourselves led to spread the good news. One of the main areas that God has given us is our family. And so if we have a family and we're not able to have that balance, it's like you said, at some point you're going to crash. You won't be able to get up. You won't be able to do, you won't be effective. And we don't want that, especially if we're representing the father. We do want to make sure that wherever we're stepping out next, that that's the next best step that we're supposed to take. So I appreciate your transparency. Thank you so much for saying that because I feel like we all need to hear it. Not everything is what you're to jump in and do tomorrow. But if this is where you're to go, please make sure that you're investing in yourself and investing in the opportunity so that it will be the best when it does come to fruition. I greatly appreciate that. Thank you very, very and I, much. And I will say, you know, you don't have you can do courses without making it your full-time business. So for me, courses is is my day job. It's my full-time business. But there's a lot of authors who they write a book on a topic and they get a lot of emails from readers who are like, thank you so much for your book. It was so helpful, but I want some more. I want, mm -hmm. I want more than what is in the book. And so the author is like, well, I could do coaching. But that's really time intensive. So I'm going to put together a course that's kind of the next step. It's like the book advanced, right? So there's the $20 book. Now there's the $100 course or $150 course. It's not a very expensive course, but it's more than what the book cost. And they develop the material and they put it together. And it's one of the many things that they offer. So they're at a conference and they're selling their book or their books. Then they also have a course uh, that they can also sell in person or online. So you don't have to, you know, I do courses big. You don't have to do courses big. In fact, I, I wouldn't recommend it especially right away. You know, it took me 10 years to get here. <laughs> so, right. Uh, and uh, I took a lot of wrong turns along the way. And do you have, I know this is crazy. I know that you have courses that are out there available. Do you have one on making courses? A course on course making? Mm -hmm. I do not. The best course on course making is from Teachable. It's a, one of the course platforms and it's actually free. I mean, you have to pay for Teachable, but as a perk, you get their really robust uh, course on, on course making that comes with it. I've thought about it, putting together a course on, on courses, but I'm, I'm busy with the courses I already have. So <laughs> that, that's far into the future. Uh, but there are some things I've learned the hard way uh, that I'd love to put into a course in terms of like, here's some mistakes to avoid. Well, why don't, why don't we go with that? Let's look at what are some of the common mistakes that course creators make? So I'd say the biggest mistake is they want to make a course. The first thing they do is make the course. They start outlining the material that they want to teach and they start recording videos. And that's actually backwards. Uh, and one of the things I learned the hard way is that the first thing you need to make when you're making a course is the landing page, the sales page. If you want somebody to spend several hundred dollars with you. You have to have a really compelling promise of here is the transformation I'm going to bring in your life. 
right? So one of my courses is Obscure No More. It's all about how to build a platform as an author. And that's a big promise, right? It's like, you're going to go from being obscure where no one really knows who you are and you're not going to be obscure anymore. You're going to be notable. You're going to be, uh, you're going to have a platform. People are going to know who you are so that when your book comes out, they're, they're already anticipating it because they already know, like, and trust you. And you build that sales page first and you figure out the right promise to make for your reader, something or your students, something that they actually want. And instead of trying to sell them what you think they need, <laughs> you need to eat more vegetables. Nobody wants to take a course on eating more vegetables, but they might take a course on weight loss, right? That teaches them to eat more vegetables. And so how you frame it is really important. And then you, you create this landing page. You still don't create the course. <laughs> the course, uh, everyone wants to jump into course creation and it's still a mistake. So the next step is to uh, gather beta students. Students who get the course cheap and they get the course as it's made. And you're making the course for this initial group of students and you're getting that feedback right away uh, from the students. And then you are making changes and you're iterating based off of the student feedback of the initial group of students that you have. And then once you've successfully finished with your beta students, uh, then you launch it for real. And the other nice thing about having beta students is that while they're paying less, they're still paying something. And if you can't get beta students, you don't make the course. <laughs> so <laughs> instead of spending 100 hours making a course and then trying to find an audience, don't do mm. that to yourself because you you may be off, right? Maybe just some minor tweak in the promise that you're offering changes everything or a minor tweak in the audience, right? Maybe you thought, that you're writing for women, it turns out your target audience is teenage girls. And you're like, well, it doesn't change a lot, but it changes everything. And and I've already recorded 20 hours worth of video and I now have to mm. go in and change the references because these teenage girls won't know this movie that came out in the 1980s. Uh, so you want to figure those things out beforehand. <laughs> and mm. uh, as much as you want to jump into course making, uh, it, really getting the audience first is important. And this is a lesson I, I learned the hard way in business with the first business I launched. And there was a book that came out after I learned this, you know, failed business <laughs> lesson called The Lean Startup. And the principle that the book teaches is what's called the minimum viable product. What's the minimum version of this course that's viable that people would be willing to buy that I can put out as an experiment, as a test. And then you kind of layer on additions to the course. Uh, from that minimum viable uh, version. And you test the minimum viable version to see if it's something that people actually want and to see if it's something that people want from you, right? Because it could be a great course idea, but they don't want it from you, right? Maybe it's because you haven't done the work to build up your credibility or build up your audience. In many ways, the course is the last thing you add to your platform. Now, this is this is so informative because you're right. We do. We're like, oh, I've got a course. I'm going to jump in, make the course. Beta, beta students are amazing. And when we choose beta students, how diverse should we be with that? What are we looking for to, to know that we have a good beta student? It's kind of like when people are writing a book and they want all their family to be their beta readers. And I'm like, don't know that that's the best route, but what's your thoughts? So the difference, and I mean, it makes all the difference, is a beta student is still a paying student. 
So I wouldn't give away free um, versions of the course for beta students. For one, in my experience, when you give somebody a course for free, they almost never finish it. They're not invested. Now you could, Linda, you could probably list off a dozen courses you've gotten for free that you never even started. Mm -hmm. right? You saw it was free. You signed up. They've got you on their email list now, which was their real goal. And you've never gone through the course. <laughs> so whereas if you spend $500 for a course, you're going to take those and watch those videos. And so you're not going to get good feedback from somebody who's not a, a paying student. And if they are willing to pay, they saw your landing page, they saw the description of the course, and it was something that they wanted, then they're probably a good student. And I will say my course, Obscure No More, that I mentioned earlier, is still in beta. It's, we're doing kind of an extended beta because it's a really big course. But it's been really informative. The students wanted, because I've been asking them, what session do you want me to make next? What module do you want me to make next? And I let them vote. And they voted for search engine optimization. You know, SEO, how to make your website rank better on Google. That is my most technical, like esoteric topic that I ever speak on. And I was like, do y'all really want this? But they voted. They said they wanted it. And they hadn't really gotten that training from anyone else. And so now suddenly they're the one author in their space that's got an optimized website and they're ranking really well. And I would have never guessed that because most authors that I interact with don't want to learn about SEO. Just building the website is hard enough. <laughs> but of the students who are the kind of students who are paying for the course, that was an interesting topic for them. And so it allowed me to make the course that they wanted. Uh, and I wouldn't have known that without that feedback. Mm. That's I tell you, we have to have the feedback if we're in our own head thinking this is and you said this earlier if we're giving someone what we think they need, we're going to miss the mark. If we open it up and we go, no, this is where we're going. What do you want? Now I can feed you something that you're hungry for instead of trying to tell you this is what you need to eat or this is what you need to be hungry for. So that's perfect. 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 So then that takes us to the, the next jump here. If we have our course, how do we attract students to come in? I know you mentioned make sure that you do have that sales page first, that landing page. What do, what do we do once we've got it up there? So I'll tell you the advice most of the gurus will tell you, and then I'll tell you what I do, which is something totally different. <laughs> so uh, what most course creators do is they set aside a significant portion of their budget uh, to pay for Facebook ads specifically ads on Facebook. And so let's say they have a course, it's $500. They may spend as much as $250 per student in ads to get students. So mm. the half of the money goes into advertising. So it's not uncommon for course creators to be spending thousands or tens of thousands of dollars on advertising on Facebook. And that works. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade at that. Uh, that totally works. There's a reason why they all do it. It's just not what I do. <laughs> I reserve the right to try it in the future. <laughs> but what's okay. worked for me is, uh, one, I have my podcast, uh, or I have my podcast. They're very popular, and they have big, robust email lists attached to them. So a lot of people who listen to Novel Marketing and Christian Publishing Show, but especially Novel Marketing, they subscribe. In fact, we have more email subscribers than we have listeners to any specific episode, because a lot of people subscribe via email rather than on a podcast app. And they listen to the episodes that are interesting to them and skip the ones that aren't relevant to them for whatever reason. And so I have this really robust email list that I've spent 15 years building. 
and I'm able to let them know about the course. So that's kind of the core group of students. And then the other promotion tool that I've used is uh, affiliate webinars. And, and I should say, I don't invite them to the course directly. I invite them to my own list. I invite them to a webinar where I present basically the first session of the course. I call it session zero, but it's, it's kind of an introductory session as to why this topic is important. It's the class that I wish all of my professors did in college. You know, there's that mm. first, you know, reading of the syllabus day. And some professors, you go through the syllabus, they'd set the expectations, and then you go home early. And other professors would spend 15 minutes explaining why it's important to learn about the topic. And I always got better grades in those classes where the professor said, this is important, you're going to need this class uh, for the rest of your life. And, and here's why. And, and sometimes I already knew that coming in. So when I took business law in school, I knew, and I come from a family of, of business people, I knew what a big deal law is and how expensive legal cases were. So my first professor, I could tell after two classes wasn't hard enough, right? He wasn't tough enough. The, he wasn't teaching enough. And I dropped the class because I wanted a harder professor. <laughs> no joke. I wanted the hardest, best business law professor because I knew hiring a lawyer and learning these lessons any other way was going to be way more expensive. And I came to every class. I sat on the front row and I took really good notes because I knew it was important. Well, that why this is important also happens to be a really good sales pitch, right? For why you should spend the money. <laughs> so I adapt that session zero into kind of a sales pitch webinar where I'm teaching, but I'm also selling at the same time. And it's, and it's combined, but it's, it's um, teaching enough so that people who come and don't buy the course still were happy that they came to the webinar. Like, yes. Yeah, I learned a lot. And that way they will come to the next webinar, right? Because I have more than one course and maybe this isn't quite the right course for them, right? This course is on launching a book and they're not ready yet. They need a course on writing the book. Well, I have a different course on writing the book. And so I want to keep that good relationship with the uh, email subscriber. And so the second technique that I use is the affiliate webinar, which is where I give that same webinar, but to somebody else's audience. So Linda, let's say you've got a big email list, you'd host the webinar at, and you'd invite your email list to the event. I'd host it on Crowncast, and then we would do a pitch. We'd do that same webinar, but for your audience, and then we'd have a link, and you would get a commission for each sale that came through from that webinar. And that's where a big portion of our students come from, from affiliate webinars, because there's lots of gurus, and they all have their different audiences, and they can make good money uh, doing affiliate webinars, <laughs> and because uh, it allows them to make money off of a course without having to make the course. Make the course. And I get students that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, what if what if you're listening and you go, I don't have a robust email list? So that's step one. <laughs> if, <laughs> if someone won't trust you with their email, they're not going to trust you with their money. And so you really got to learn how to get that enough trust for somebody to give you their email address first. That you got to, you're not ready for a course. Now there is, I say that there is a technique to use courses to build your email list. And I do use this some, and it actually works. And that is to create a very small course that offers one really small, but very specific transformation. And you give that course away for free. And people take that free course, they get a taste for your teaching style, they get a taste for your expertise, and you get their email address. So they pay you with their email address. And 
this is where I get a lot of my email subscribers actually is from that free course. Now I tell people about it on my podcast, right? It's all connected. So at the end of the podcast, the podcast, the, an issue of the podcast may be sponsored by, you know, the free course on how to build an author website, which is the transformation. That's what we promise. I build an author website and you get to watch me and I walk you through exactly what to sign up for, what buttons to click. And at the end of the course, you have your own WordPress website that you built yourself. And uh, the way I promote it is on the podcast. So it's a way of getting those podcast listeners onto my email list and giving them a taste of what a author media course is like. So you can use a small course to build your email list, but you still need some way of getting the word out about that free course, or you're not going to have an email list. Right. And I know that a lot of times we invite people to be involved in their area of expertise, even if they are not the expert that's being featured, which is really it's similar to what you're talking about as far as the affiliate website. But in building their emails, they, they need to get out there and network. They need to get out there and find out where their audience is spending their time before they invite them to spend time with themselves. And it takes an investment. It takes an investment of time, energy, research. It becomes, I mean, it is work. It's not, I'm going to get up one morning and today I'm just going to explode my email list. It's finding out what does work. How should I approach my audience? What is the best way for me to touch the heart of my audience and give them content that they're like, you know what? I am willing to support this person. I'm willing to invest in the knowledge that this person has because I know it's going to help me be better at what I am. As a coach, that's one of the areas that I really try to be as diligent as possible is when I meet someone for the first time and they're, and this is our, do we fit? And I go, all right, tell me a little bit about yourself. It doesn't have to do with coaching at that time, but I want them to walk away with something that they're like, wow, she gave me something and I didn't even pay her for this. And if this is what I get without paying her, what am I going to get when I do pay her? which is similar to what you have here, but you don't give away the whole course. You don't give away all of your XYZ experience or expertise, but you give enough to satisfy so that they're leaning in. I like that changing their posture. They're going to lean into you because they really want to hear more and they're going to show up the next time that you do a webinar. They're going to show up for your next podcast because you are viable and valuable to their next best step. And that's everything that I'm hearing from you right now. And I do like that, you know, do one small transformation course. And I like that you use the word transformation. That's one of my favorite words. So is transparency. And, but when we are willing to give someone something of value and not hold back, whether they go forward with us or not, we know what they're going to say is, have, have y'all heard Thomas Umstead Jr.? Have you, have you been to any of the events online? Have you been in person and seen what he, because I've been both. I've seen you in person 
you're online, and you always give. You give more than what people even realize they needed. And that's what makes everyone show up again and again. And that's what we all should be striving to do. Not be fearful of, well, but if I give them too much, then they're not going to X, Y, Z, buy the book. And I'm like, oh my word, give them, give them stuff. So yay. Yeah, the, the principle is called reciprocity. And it's actually one of the things that Jesus taught. And it's and perhaps his most perplexing parable. It's the parable of the unjust steward. You've got this steward, which is like an old timey word for a CEO of a company. And the owner of the company realizes that the CEO is embezzling money, right? The steward is mm-hmm. dipping into the coffers. And so uh, the owner does something that we're taught in business school never to do, right? If you catch somebody embezzling, you fire them immediately. Because if you don't, they do exactly what the unjust steward did, right? <laughs> he starts right, uh, right. loaning money and giving money for free, you know, writing down the debts of everyone who owes his master money. He's like, oh, do you own 500 bushels of wheat? Come and write 300 or whatever. And um, he's commended at the end of the parable for being shrewd. And Jesus said, for the children of darkness are more shrewd than the children of light. Like, what on earth is Jesus trying to teach with that parable? Well, we have built into us by God a conscience and a sense of justice. And when someone strikes us on the face, there's something inside of us that wants to make it even and strike them back, right? Some, every, even a small child has that, right? You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Mm. Of course, we're taught as Christians to give vengeance to God. Uh, but something that the children of darkness sense intuitively that we as the children of light have to learn from this parable, because it's really the only place it's taught, I think, is that that sense of justice goes both ways. You do a favor for somebody else. You strike them with a blessing rather than with a curse, and they have a sense in their soul to set the the scales back to balance and bless you back. And, um, and so some people bless just to get blessed back, right? And they keep really careful score. It's like, hey, I did you this favor. Now you owe me a favor back. I, I don't think that's the way, right? I don't think keeping scores is the way, but I do think being generous and trying to bless other people that you do eventually reap what you sow. You do have to ask, and, and this is something that I'm, that I'm learning, you know, especially as we have patrons that support the podcast, right? And I have to be willing to ask them to support the podcast and let them know of the need be like, hey, this is not a volunteer operation. This is my job. <laughs> so if you're enjoying the podcast, you know, please, you know, support the podcast. If you're getting value from it, you need to give the value back. Uh, and being willing to charge for your work is important. And it's something that Christians sometimes struggle with, right? It's like, oh, I can't charge for this book. It's a Christian book. I can't charge for this course. It's a Christian course. And you just need to realize that that is evil, unbiblical thinking. Mm. <laughs> so uh, the worker is worthy of his hire. Do not muzzle the ox that treads the grain. Paul very clearly in black and white says that Christian workers, pastors can get paid for their work and should get paid for their work. And if you are insisting on not getting paid because you're too holy, you're effectively setting yourself up as more holy and more righteous than your own pastor who is getting paid, right? Because it's work mm. and that work is worthy of being compensated. Pastors have got to eat too. And pastors have to pay their rent and their mortgages and uh, don't uh, uh, resist that pride. I'm not, I'm not going to charge. I'm, I'm a noble Christian. And I'm not going to charge. Charge if you need to. Um, in fact, in, with courses, it actually helps. You often get a bigger, better transformation 
when you charge. And this is really demonstrable, right? I'll give free copies of a expensive course away to somebody. And I never see transformation when I do that because they don't value the course. They got it for free. They don't watch the videos. They don't come to the live events. They're not transformed because they're not invested because where your money is there, your heart is also. Mm, so good. So here we go. We have got the course. How do we ensure that our students complete and benefit from your course? I mean, is there a way to ensure that? So this is something I've spent the last several years really trying to study. In fact, I even um, bought a book uh, by educators for educators, like in public school settings, uh, trying to figure out this whole online learning thing, <laughs> because it, it was a great opportunity to put a lot of minds pondering this problem by forcing you know tens of thousands of uh, educators to start teaching online for the first time. And one of the first, one of the things I realized is that there's a difference between selling knowledge and selling education. Knowledge wants to be free. You can share knowledge really easily. And um, the it's really hard to charge a lot of money for knowledge because somebody else can share that secret or that tip for free to the next person. And you start competing with your own students. Uh, there are ways of making knowledge valuable by keeping it secret, but that's not really compatible with the whole um, course teaching ethos, right? The people who do well with courses are teachers and teachers don't like keeping secrets. <laughs> it's just <laughs> not the way we think. And so uh, you don't want to sell knowledge. You want to sell education because education always wants to be expensive. You can, I think it's MIT. You can go on and watch any MIT lecture from any of the MIT professors for free right now. And yet, for some reason, MIT is still able to charge tens of thousands of dollars a semester for school. How is that, <laughs> right? Um, TED, the conference, used to not be very popular. Then they started giving away the sessions for free at TED.com. You could watch a TED Talk online for free. And the price of tickets, I think, went from $300 a ticket to $3,000 a ticket because of supply and demand. Wow. Because more people wanted the experience. They wanted that live experience. And so for courses, if you want to have good student outcomes, you can't just record a bunch of videos and post them and then kind of dust your hands off and walk away <laughs> because mm -hmm. people need more interaction. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you can have that kind of course and I have that kind of course, but you have to charge less for it because you're giving less of a transformation. But it's also less investment on your part, right? You're not, once you make the course that's up there, it's available and people do want to pay for knowledge, right? There's no problem selling knowledge and you can present the knowledge well, then that's great. So I'm not criticizing anyone who has that kind of course. If you go through the free course on websites, that's exactly what it is, right? I'm not offering any free coaching. I'm not going to review your homepage and give you feedback. Uh, but if I wanted to charge for the course, I would do that potentially, especially if I wanted to charge a lot for the course. I would add uh, interactive elements. And what I've learned when it comes to student outcomes, there's two things that really help. One is mixing really well-produced, really focused presentation of the material. So pre-recorded, edited, real tight. So not a Zoom call that you just kind of uploaded, but like short five to 10 minute videos that go through the material very clearly that people can go back and reference very easily. You mix that with the live, interactive, face-to-face -face, uh, interactions with your students. So for Obscure No More, 
I have, you know, I'll put out a new module, let's say on search engine optimization, right? We have a module just on how to rank on Google. And then I did, after I released that, I did a live office hours where students would, who had gone through the material and made the changes to their websites would pull up, you know, they come on the screen with me, I'd pull up their website, we'd go through it and I'd point out things that they could do better. That student benefited and all the other students watching also benefited, especially the ones who hadn't done the homework yet, right? They were, they were able to learn from the mistakes of others, uh, but they had missed out on the opportunity to get feedback on their website. So that's the first thing that really helps is have at mixing the live and the pre-recorded. If you're all live, then there's nothing really for students to reference back, right? There's an hour-long Zoom call or a crowdcast, and that one piece of advice they wanted from that hour-long recording, where do they find it? It's too intimidating. So you really have to have both. The second thing that works incredibly well, uh, but is a lot more work, is what's called the cohort model. We currently only have one course that uses the cohort model. And this is where the course starts at a certain time and everybody does day one together. Everyone does day two together. And uh, we're involved and active the whole time. So the one course we do this way is called the Book Launch Blueprint. And it's all about launching your book. And it's probably our most popular course in terms of how much students enjoy it. And students will come back and do it again the next year because once you buy it, you own it forever. And they enjoyed it so much last year, they do it again, right? Can you imagine a college course. You're like, I enjoyed so much. I want to go to that course again. Uh, but we have <laughs> a lot of students who return and they're interactive and coaching and encouraging the students that are new uh, each year. Mm -hmm. And the principle here is, um, not a new one. It's something that armies have known for a long time. Why do armies have the kid with the drums up front beating a cadence and everyone's marching along? Because for some reason, you can march faster and farther with less fatigue when you're marching in lockstep with everyone else. This does not make sense. I do not understand why this is the case. <laughs> so I couldn't explain it to you scientifically, but I do know that it's true. If you want your troops to march all day and arrive at the battle with some energy left to fight, have a kid beating the drums at the front of the column because it really does make a difference. And you'll notice that most education, whether it's at the collegiate level or elementary school, is on the cohort model, right? You go to mm. school, it's a cohort. You're going through with all of your fellow classmates at the same pace. And for some reason, that works a lot better. The downside of this is that um, students want to be able to sign up at any time and they can't, right? We don't do signups all the time for the book launch blueprint. We only have signups open for about a month a year. So it's usually in the spring, February, March uh, range. We'll open up signups. We have a specific start date and uh, we should have a start date by now, but we had a baby and I didn't want to <laughs> schedule it <laughs> until we'd figured out uh, what life was like with the baby and I'm still trying to figure that out. This is uh, my first guest interview after, after the baby is born. But um, the, the cohort model uh, works really well for students finishing the course and going farther in the course because they want to keep up with the other students. And, and for Book Launch Blueprint, a lot of the homework is open books. So you can see the homework that the other authors are doing, their book launch plans for their launches. You get ideas from them. You're encouraging each other. And it only really makes sense if you went through the material, right? If you didn't watch the videos on how to do Goodreads, and you're seeing someone's homework on their plan for Goodreads and their book launch. You don't know <laughs> if it's a good plan or not because you didn't watch the video. So it motivates you to keep up uh, with the other students. And I, I really find that that works best in terms of maximizing outcomes. 
It also helps in some ways with sales because there's a, a real urgency. It's not fake urgency. It's like buy now, you know, or the discount goes away is one way to add real urgency, but an even better urgency is buy now because you won't be able to buy it again next year. And it's not some contrived thing. It's like, we have a good reason for this, right? We only do right. one semester a year. And um, so uh, th those that's what I've learned so far. I'm sure there's other tricks for in, in good student outcomes. Um, maybe the, the third one, if I were to add one, is a good um, feedback loop. So you want to make it really easy for students to ask you questions, whether live and in person or, or through a, a community board, because those questions help you make the material better. So a good course is not a static thing. So we're in the process of completely changing Book Launch Blueprint. Every year we do it, we take four to eight sessions and re-record them from scratch. And so it's constantly evolving and improving and updating uh, each year. And the changes that we make, one, we're better, right? We have better gear now. We've learned more about video. Um, but also we've had years of questions and we know the parts where students are really getting hung up. It's like, oh, everyone's misunderstanding this part and they're getting discouraged or, or we need to change it. We need to word it in a way that makes more sense. And after a few rounds of that, you end up with something that's much higher quality than you could have ever done the first time around. No, this is perfect. And, and this really is, does have the cohort method, does have biblical application. We are to come together in community and in community with like mind, like heart, we, we move forward in a, a cohesive way and we strengthen one another in the journey. So this is, I can see how it would work. And I do like that sense of urgency. I do have a question as we're coming here. I know that we have, there's a free course that you're going to make available to our listeners. We do have that in the show notes and uh, tell us about that. And then I'd like us to talk just a little bit more about your book launch blueprint. You have given us so information, so much information. This episode is so valuable. I hope people share it and share it and share it. So let's talk about first the free course that you'd like to offer our listeners. Yeah. So when you first met me back in the olden days of my career, back when I was doing too many things, one of the things I was doing was running a web design agency for authors. I was building websites for authors. And that was, and I had people who worked with me, I had a whole team of website builders. And I gave up that business. I don't build websites for authors anymore, but I still have, I still get referrals. <laughs> I haven't built a website for an author in years. And I still get authors referred to me because the people we did build websites for, you know, really liked them. And I needed a way, especially in the early days when I was getting a lot of referrals of what to do, right? Where do I send these folks? So I worked with some other agencies that I referred to, but for a lot of authors, really the better thing is for them to build the website themselves. And so I put together a course on how to build your own website. And I walk through the whole process. So the first half is the blocking and tackling, how to set up WordPress, how to install a theme, uh, which theme to get. The second half of the course, though, assumes that you already have a website, and it's how to make it better, how to make it the kind of website that readers want to visit, the kind of website that readers want to share with other readers, and how to transform your author website from a, a website about the author to a website about the reader, because it's really websites for readers are the websites that are effective 
because people don't care about you. They care about themselves. <laughs> so, mm. which I know is hard to hear, but it's the truth. So <laughs> learning how to make your website more beneficial, more, more of a blessing to your reader is what the second half of the course is focused on. And I, and I will point this out about this course. This course does make me a little bit of money. So even though it's a free course, the theme that I recommend, which is the theme that I use in myself for all of my websites and the hosting that I recommend, uh, those are affiliate links. You don't have to use them. And some students do and some students don't. But enough students use those affiliate links to bring in a little bit of money to offset some of the costs of doing the course and and also to help pay the bills, right? There's nothing wrong with making some money. It's just being funded through a different way. It's not being paid for by all of the students. It's only the students who choose to use my recommendations and click my links, right? Because you don't have to click the affiliate link. It's not like it blocks you from the next video right. or what have you. But as you're thinking about courses to create, this is something to think about. Like, am I making recommendations that have affiliate relationship potential? Because that is a way of monetizing a free course. And it doesn't cost the individual who clicks on the link. It doesn't cost you more. It doesn't cost them more. It's just you kind of advertising for someone else and you get a little bit of change from that. So is that is that correct? That's right. It doesn't cost them any more. Sometimes it costs them less, actually, because mm -hmm. sometimes there's a coupon code attached or okay, um, or like for podcast hosting, for instance, if you click an affiliate link for podcast host, often you get the first month for free that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But the most common affiliate is Amazon, right? You recommend a book in your course, you put an affiliate link to Amazon. It's the same price for them, but Amazon makes a little bit less money. You know what? Amazon has plenty of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amazon making a little bit less isn't going to hurt them at all. Mm, very good. Good. All right. Now tell us a little bit more as we're wrapping up here about your book launch blueprint. And yeah, I'm just going to let you go with that. So this is a course that I teach with James L. Rubart, who's a Christie Hall of Fame author and a best-selling author. And it's about launching your book. It's about those first few days that your book comes out. Now, this is really important, especially if you're traditionally published, but also if you're independently published. And so if you're traditionally published, your traditional publisher will get you put on bookshelves of bookstores uh, if they're good. <laughs> um, but they'll only get you on the bookshelves uh, for 30 to 60 days. If those books sell, the bookstore will order more and you'll stay on the bookshelf. If those books do not sell, the bookstore will return the ones that didn't sell and you will get nothing. And so having a strong launch for authors is critical. It's also important for indie authors who are selling on Amazon. Uh, you get this window where not having very many reviews doesn't count against you when it's a new release. So if you only have five reviews and it's a new release, it's no big deal. But if you have five reviews and you are not a new release, people will be suspicious of the books. Readers don't really look at the number of stars. They look at the number of, of reviews. And so the stronger of a launch you have, the more reviews you get at first, the more readers you're able to pull into the bookstore to pull off those first books. Because uh, if you sell enough books, eventually the bookstore, maybe they ordered only one or two copies at first. Now they're ordering five or six copies because the sales are so high. Now that means they're face out <laughs> rather than spying out, which means you're getting strangers who are walking down the aisle. They see a face out book. They're like, oh, what's this? They pull it off and now they're buying the book and it becomes this virtuous cycle. 
So the book launch blueprint is all about how to make that virtuous cycle happen, how to get on media, how to do radio, how to do TV, how to build your email list, but also what to do with your emails, what's email strategy to have, how to put together a book launch strategy, a book launch team, and a whole bunch more. So it's a very robust course. Each day we focus on just one thing. So like one day we focus on branding. Another day we focus on email. Another day we focus on launch parties, right? How to have a good launch party, what to do, what to avoid. A lot of things you could learn the hard way yourself. <laughs> um, but it, it's a lot easier and cheaper to learn it the easy way. And especially if you're traditionally publishing that first book judges whether or not you even get the second contract. If your sales on your first book are not good, traditional publishers won't work with you. And I, I saw that as a literary agent. I had authors who had really cool books, but they had a previously pub poorly published first book that had bad sales. Publishers would see those sales and not want to work with them. And because they assume that your second book is going to sell like your first book. Mm. So this is great. We have the link where they can find out more information, of course, in the show notes. Thomas, just thank you so much for being on with us, praying for you in this new season of life with one more addition to the family. Families are amazing, and we stay incredibly active when we have them. <laughs> so th this is just truth. This is just truth. But thank you for joining us here today and look forward to the next time, as always. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Linda, for having me on. And thank you, friends. I know there's a lot to unpack from today, but what's great about podcasts, you can go back and listen to it again. We will have links, of course, for you in the show notes and where you can find Thomas. And, and please do. Please go and listen to his podcasts and, and take him up on the courses that he has. They're fabulous. Something that will fill your quiver with arrows that will keep you on target for God's goal in your life. So I pray that you will do that. As I said, thank you for joining us. And please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because what you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I look forward to being here with you next time on Your Best Writing Life. <laughs>